Uh, hopefully you had an opportunity to get a handout, and we're going to be uh, looking this week at our, our third and final week on um, God's sovereignty, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and then we'll be continuing on um, with a few other doctrines as we go through this um, for, for several weeks. So, um, so we spent three weeks on God's sovereignty, or this will be the third week, and then we'll move on to some others, and then we'll um, switch to another discipleship hour topic as we kind of pop in and out of um, the doctrine ones and then some, some other ones as well. So uh, looking forward to thinking some more about um, what Paul Tripp has to say from his book, Do You Believe?, um, 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. So uh, we'll be looking at that today. Um, why don't we start with some review, and then I'll, I'll um, pray. But we've been looking at Paul Tripp's definition of sovereignty, which is, it boils it down nicely. I mean, whole books can be written about topics like this. Uh, but he says that God's sovereignty means that God is in absolute control of his world, and everything that happens without any gaps, limits, interference, or thwarting of his rule. And it means that God alone determines all that will happen and rules the means by which everything will happen. And so we'll be looking more today at especially that rules the means part, um, which is kind of more his overall controlling of providence. And so uh, we'll be looking at that as we go. Um, Good. Why don't we, I'll, I'll pray now, and then we'll, we'll dive into um, more of this review as then we look into some of the narratives and applications this morning. So why don't we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people and study your word. Thank you for the way you've revealed yourself in scripture, how you show yourself to be absolutely in control of all things, and yet so imminently and tenderly present in every aspect of our lives. Will you help us to see you more clearly today by your Spirit? Will you help us to see you as you've revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially what that means for us as we think about um, your love, your control, and how we can rest in you? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we kind of looked at a definition of sovereignty, and then it's helpful to keep in mind there are two aspects of God's sovereignty. And, you know, you could break these out as completely separate topics as well. But when we come to the two aspects of God's sovereignty, uh, there are his decrees and there is his providence. And uh, we think of those two things working together when we think about his sovereignty. His decree is the decisions that he has made. Um, another way of thinking about it is his eternal plan, that God has decreed how all things will be. God has planned from eternity how all things will be. Uh, that's one aspect of his sovereignty. The second aspect of his sovereignty is his providence. So we have decree, providence. Providence means not only that God has planned everything, but he actively rules over the means by which those things come to pass. He governs, sustains, affects, and controls all things to providentially bring about what he has sovereignly decreed. So you see how those two work together? You have to have a plan, um, but then also he providentially makes sure that plan comes to pass. And he does so in this wonderful mystery that we'll be talking about today that fully incorporates human agency and freedom 
into that plan and providential working. And it's something that we'll never be able to fully reconcile in our minds. Um, is God absolutely sovereign? Does what we do matter? Yes to both, even though for us it's like, how can that be? <laughs> so we'll, as I said, unpack that a bit more today. So checking in again on homework. Ryan gave homework back in week one, and um, you know, some of us do our homework the day it's assigned. Others of us are procrastinators, and so I just thought I'd kind of check in. Does anyone remember what Ryan was encouraging us to think about? You can just mumble it, and I'll assume it's the right thing. It's cool. Yeah, the circle. I, I like that, Robin. Thanks. Yeah. Time or what is this? Uh, anyhow, I don't know. I'm not a referee. Uh, but it's cool. The circles, right? So there's some circles to kind of think about as we think of these categories of um, what our role is within God's sovereignty. One circle is the circle of responsibility. These are the things that we have some control over. We don't have absolute control over anything in our lives, but those things within the circle are the things that we're called to do. Um, And then there's also a circle of concern. And if we don't have a distinction between these two things, we can think that everything that we're concerned about is something that we're responsible for and responsible in the same way. And instead, the things that are within the circle of our responsibility Those things, we seek to trust God with those things. We seek to obey whatever commands God has in Scripture about those things. So if it's uh, in a relationship, we seek to obey the one another commands. Um, If it's in regards to money, like our own finances, we seek to honor Scripture's wisdom principles. And a lot of this, there are some things that we obey, and a lot of it, though, is just seeking to be faithful within that area of responsibility, to seek to steward it well, steward our jobs well, steward our family relationships well, um, steward our money well, our health, all those things. But there also is the circle of, um, of concern. And with those things that are further outside our control, our main response is to entrust those things to God. Um, but a lot of times we fret and worry about all the things on the same level. And sometimes the things that are here, these circles of concern, there's actually very little we can do about, but we spend most of our time thinking about them. So understanding God's sovereignty helps us kind of zero in on the circle of responsibility and then also entrust God with those broader things that we're concerned about. Now, I I just want to mention too, as we've been like marinating on this for the last few weeks, when you think of these circles, They're nice, clean breaks right there, right, in the drawing, but they're much more porous than this, right? And so there are some things in our lives that fall kind of dead center of the circle of responsibility that um, are very clearly our responsibility. So I show up at work and I'm responsible for my role. Now, I'm not responsible for my boss's role, (laughs) you know, but like part of it I'm very responsible for. But as things, there's a sliding scale as you go out from there though. And it's not always completely black and white that, oh, in this area I have no responsibility and in this one I have 100% responsibility. Um, you can think you could think of it in terms of parenting. Um, when our children are little, it's much more in the center of responsibility, right? Uh, change diaper, feed. Like we're very responsible for keeping a baby alive, right? But as children get older, 
it progresses more and more into the responsibilities much more indirect, right? Uh, as they get older, they begin thinking for themselves. And what we're responsible for with them kind of becomes less and less. We're kind of moving more toward the edges, toward entrusting. And that when our kids are fully grown, it's much more something we're concerned about, but there's not as much responsibility there. So parenting is just kind of one example, but you can think of that like when you think of your job. Your particular role might be dead center, but that's affected by all these things on the sliding scale that affect you um, but you have less control over. So really helpful categories to be thinking in, especially when we find ourselves being preoccupied or worried about things. So that's why we keep reviewing that homework um, overall. So, um, well, that, that's it for review. And so now we can talk about glimpses of God's sovereignty. So what we've been doing throughout these three weeks is... Um, looking at some narrative portions in Scripture or some portions that unpack pictures for us of God's sovereignty in action and deriving biblical principles from them and then moving on to application. And so we'll do the same thing this week. The first week, we saw God's sovereignty in the Exodus and over Nebuchadnezzar. Last week, we looked at Jonah and the sparrows. This week, we're going to look at two more and both of those um, come from the book of Acts. And so these come from extended narrative sections, and I'll have us look at a few verses, but it might be helpful for you if you um, have a Bible and want to open it and follow along. There's also pew Bibles. I didn't check the page numbers, but the first passage we'll look at is Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And we'll look at the conversion of the Gentiles. There are some key verses in these sections that give us glimpses of God's sovereignty. <clears throat> so in, in Acts 13, you can see there, we're going to look at verses um, 13 and following. But if we just kind of look at the context, Paul and Barnabas have sailed to Perga, um, in verse 14, we're going to see they went north to Antioch and Pisidia. And um, Paul was going about his usual custom where he would go to the synagogue and he would speak to the Jewish people there. But then also during the week, he'd be having conversations with those who um, were Gentiles, typically. And this is speaking about his interaction with Jewish people in the synagogue. And look at verses 15 and 16. It says, after reading the, from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Then he goes on to speak about uh, Israel's history. And he's speaking about what God has done. And he's just unfolding um, these things that they would know to try and show that God's action has been in continuity with exactly what they've understood in the scriptures. But he's also explaining that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises and all of what that has been pointing to, in particular with David. Now come to verse 42. Um, so you can read... Um, his statements some other time. But as we come to verse 42, it says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is all the Roman stuff that we've been talking about, right? Chapters 9, 10, 11, chapters 14 and 15, this um, Jew and Gentile praising God with one voice. He's showing that understanding of the mission. Now notice verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what I want to key in on there, it's amazing narrative of going through Acts, but look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's that appointed word, right? We noticed that when we were looking at Jonah and God appointed the wind and a worm. And um, he was appointing all kinds of uh, created things to work redemptively in Jonah's life and for um, the Ninevites. But he's also mentioning it here, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. And notice that it's not enough from what we understand Scripture to be saying that these people were chosen by God to believe, although we know that's true, right? The doctrine of election telling us that God chooses those who will believe in him and um, draws them to faith through means. But what, it, what it's talking, Luke says more than that. He says, God also ordained that Paul and Barnabas would be there, um, that they would publicly preach a clear gospel message, that it would be heard by the Gentiles, and that they would gladly receive it with joy. It's this summary statement of all that has taken place with this journey of Paul and Barnabas and speaking there and encountering opposition, and yet God working through those means to bring about what he had ordained in eternity, that these Gentiles would hear this gospel message and um, believe in it and receive eternal life. And so what we see in this narrative is that God is not just sovereign over the results. I choose that people will believe, but also over every aspect of the process that produces the results. Um, That's his providence. We can summarize it this way. Uh, He rules, speaking of God, he rules his world in such a way that our choices are valid and our actions are important. He is sovereign over the ends, people coming to faith, and the means, all the things that lead up to that. Isn't that amazing? Uh, It's really stretching, I think, for us to be able to grasp this. And again, I mentioned at the beginning 
this this is something that is unreconcilable in our mind. It's um, J.I. Packer speaking about the sovereignty of God. Um, speaks about it as like two rails on a train track, right? And you see that they're running parallel, but as you look at them in the distance, it looks like they converge, but they never actually do converge in our logic. And yet scripture is telling us that these things are completely true. It's just creaturely, we can't reconcile them in our heads. Um, But embracing both is so important, not only for correctly articulating a doctrine, but it's really important for how we think about life. And, and we'll see that as, as we go on, how we think about prayer, how we think about our own actions. So that's glimpse number one. Let's take a look at the last one, which is continuing on in Acts. It's Paul in Athens, which we find in Acts 17. And I closed my Bible, so now I have to see if I can figure out where Acts is again. Just kidding. I do know where it is. It's just, can I get there uh, and see the small print? Um, Acts 17. So here we progressed a little bit in the narrative, and now Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens. And so we think Greece, and not like the musical, but like the place, Greece. And um, we think about that, and when we think of Greece, we think of philosophy, and that's something that's going to be happening here. He's encountering a very different audience than the Jews in the synagogues. He gets invited to the Areopagus, and there he will deal with um, Epicureans and Stoics, philosophers of the day. And what people think is going on in the context here is at the Areopagus, um, that's where they would convene to make decisions about admitting new deities into their circle of worship, basically. So this is kind of an evaluation. They've heard what Paul's talking about, and they're saying, hmm, you're speaking of these things like Jesus, and then this word for resurrection, which they might have thought was even the name of a god, um, which is just interesting. They're saying, let's hear you out to see if what you're talking about should be added into... um, some of the beliefs of what we're thinking about. And so we find this in um, verses 22. We'll read 22 to 25. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." We'll just stop there for a moment. Paul's speech here is just an amazing apologetic of how we can speak with people who don't come from an understanding of all the scriptures, uh, but come from an understanding of, first of all, a religious impulse and exist within the world of creation, 
right? But notice what he says when it comes to God's sovereignty. Paul's speaking there. Did you notice all the language about God's transcendence? And he, he created all things. Here, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see that sovereignty language? That God in his creation, and from one man all nations, was also determining allotted periods, like time frames going on, and boundaries of dwelling place. Notice all the orchestration in God's plan. And then that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, and yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. I think this is really amazing. Um, because what he's doing here is this. He's speaking about the transcendence of God in his sovereignty of planning all things, right? But then where does he go from that? He goes to a radical view of imminence, right? Um, it says that they are that he is near, having determined, so you have this language of sovereignty, and then it goes straight into that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. This God who's planning all things, actually sovereignty brings us to understand not only his transcendence, but his imminence and closeness in how he's involved in our lives. Not only did God create each one of us, but he also determined, Paul Tripp says, the exact length of our lives, the particular places where we would live. Paul says that God did this so that he would not be far from us and so that any minute we could reach out to him. The sovereign orchestrating of God is actually um, bringing us toward the nearness of God in our lives as well. Paul preaches the theology of imminent sovereignty, that God is sovereignly near to each and every one of us all the time. And we could summarize it this way. He is not separate from your world. Um, When you think of God's sovereignty, do you think of it as some impersonal God orchestrating some plan, like computer screens just kind of going off, dictating every aspect of all of reality, this very impersonal universal force or something. Instead, he's not separate from your world. His rule guarantees he is near. And that is some of the best news you and I could ever have. Um, God's orchestration of everything reminds us that he's actually intimately involved in everything that's going on in our lives. Um, and every doctrine should have us should lead us toward the cross to consider it, right? And I think the cross is such a powerful example of how the transcendence of God's sovereignty, His omnipotence—he's all-powerful. His omniscience—he knows everything. His omnipresence—he's everywhere. This this bigness of God and planning and decreeing all things also brought us the cross, right? And in his plan, part of his plan is that God would dwell among us, that he would become one of us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His rule has led us to his son. He's Lord of the story that has given us Jesus. And that's not only assured our destiny, Tripp says, but also guaranteed life with him until then. Um, So does that make sense? 
Sovereignty also makes us think God's intimately aware of and involved in everything in my life. Um, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. So um, why don't we pause here for a moment and see if you have any questions. Those are just the, the kind of last two glimpses. It's not all the Bible says about God's sovereignty. But kind of the last two glimpses. Do you have any questions or comments about um, what these pictures have kind of shown us about God and his sovereignty, both in decreeing things and in providential working? Thanks, Eamon. Yeah, if you don't mind. Eamon will bring you the mic so we can hear you and so folks at home can hear you too and to help us grow in courage. Yeah, Dave. So when you, <clears throat> when you think of the word providence, you have the, the root. <clears throat> it sounds like provide, provision, but it seems like there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Like wh- when I think of God's providence, I often think of him being generous towards us, but I don't but I also know that it's wrapped up in his sovereignty and and his sovereign rule. Can you help unpack that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, so providence I, I think that's helpful to realize that providing is an aspect of that. Um, but then what it's also speaking about, I think if we were just to put a handle on what providence is talking about, it's God's um, superintending of all of the means by which his plan will come to pass. Now, that's a huge, um, that's a huge thing. And I'm going to just jump. I had these as kind of extra slides, but um, our, the London Baptist Confession, which is um, just like the um, Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 5, verse 2, or not verse, sorry, uh, chapter 2, 5, paragraph 2, whatever, it's early. Um, it says this, and I think this helps us unpack a little bit of what's going there, going on there. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls by chance or without his providence. So let's just, this is saying that in God's sovereign plan, all things ultimately happen because God has planned it. Uh, he is the ultimate cause of everything that has taken place. Nothing happens by chance or without his providence, his orchestrating of it. But then also notice what it goes on to say, um, yet by the same providence, so this is the outworking of his plan, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. So he's the ultimate cause of all that happens, right? But these things happen according to secondary causes, either necessarily, like he's built the laws of physics into the universe, that there are these necessary causes. You jump and you'll come down because of gravity, at least on Earth. There are also free causes, free secondary causes. So do I want a hamburger or a cheeseburger? Um, that's about as free of a choice like as we can make. Um, now, it's still shaped by things, nature, nurture, um, diet, all kinds of things, but free choices or contingently. So secondary causes also being based on contingency of this thing has happened and now this thing must come to pass. But God in his providence is working through all these secondary causes, the things he's necessarily made happen, the free agency that we have, and the contingency of our choices and the things that happen in the world. And Providence is saying he's overseeing all those secondary causes to bring about what he has ultimately declared would happen. 
Um, it's really just mind-boggling, isn't it? Um, I can't even think through how my choices will affect what will happen in the next hour. And you think of like the God of the universe, every person, every thing that's happening in all the created world and superintending all of it and knowing how all of it works together to bring about his plan. It's just an amazing thing. So I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but it says a lot of words and distracts you from whether I answered it or not. <laughs> we can just be honest how it works here, right? <laughs> Any other uh, questions or comments? Things I can say words at? Okay. Well, then let's talk about God's sovereignty then in everyday life. So we'll look at a few more applications just as we've been unpacking this. Um, I'd, I'd like us to just think about three of them. And so um, they'll show up. I know they're not on your handout, but you've got two pages for any notes that are helpful. But um, what difference does this make? I want to talk for a moment about God's good sovereignty. And I don't put it in quotations because it's not good. Uh, I just want us to think about the word good. Um, Paul Tripp says that Romans 8, 28, and 29 is one of the most misused passages in Scripture. Anytime someone says that, I mean, you could pick any verse and kind of say that, but I'm, I'm like, why do you say that? What, what's going on here? I really love Romans 8, 28. How is it a misused passage? And so I, I think it's worth some time of unpacking a little bit of um, why Paul Tripp says that. Um, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works them together for the good of those who love them, love him and are called according to his purpose, right? And we often use shorthand, God works all things for good, right? Which is a true part of that verse. But the problem, Tripp says, is when this passage is lifted out of its context, it appears to say that if you're a child of God, all things in your life will turn out well. So do you, do you see how it can get used that way? Um, I just got a, so I'm speaking hypothetically here, a, a diagnosis comes in and it's, it's very grave and people say, well, God will work all things for good. And what it kind of means is that like, yeah, this part will be bad, but here in this life, you'll see some good come out of it and it will offset that bad in some way. We don't always mean it that way, um, but there are many Christians who take this passage to mean that hard things in their life will eventually have a happy ending. Um, Paul Tripp calls this happy endings theology. It's the belief that God has promised his children a good ending to bad things that they are going through, and he says it has affected, infected the church. And one way that I think about it is this. Um, uh, when it's used this way, it reminds me of the Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers, which I found out came out in 1990. Like, I was 10. That's so long. My kids would be like, what is this music? But anyhow, I don't know if you've heard the song or not, but, and I can't really sing it for you. This twang's pretty awesome. But it starts out just the other night at a hometown football game. My wife and I ran into um, my old high school flame. And so it talks about how he's with his wife at a hometown football game. And then they run into his high school sweetheart and he sees her. And then they start talking and he realized she was the one that he'd wanted for all time. But God said no to that prayer and then gave him this wife instead. And now as he's talking to her, he's really glad because his wife's better than his high school sweetheart. And the chorus says, 
Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. First of all, don't ever call God that. Like, that's probably not good to do. But when you're talking to the man upstairs, and just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care, because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Do you see, that's kind of that happy endings theology, right? Like, oh, this thing I'm going through right now is hard, but Romans 8.28 is going to say that something happy will come out of it. Um, God works all things for good. You didn't get your high school sweetheart. You got something better. But Romans 8.28 is saying more than that. Um, and I think that's important for us to see. Let's look at the context a little bit. It's, it's talking about the present groanings of this life, right? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's this living in the already and the not yet and the tension that we feel of new creation breaking in and yet we're still living in bodies that are um, fallen in an age that's passing away. And what Paul wants his readers to understand is that nothing that they are facing in this groaning has the ability to stop the march of God's redemptive plan and nothing about what they are facing can separate us from his love. That's what he's getting at. Not necessarily that it means there will be a happy ending to this chapter in some way. And so notice what comes after as well. Um, Come on, buddy, you can do it. There we go. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses are telling us what the good is that Romans 8.28 is talking about, right? And, and what are they ultimately speaking about? They're speaking about conformity to the image of Christ and ultimately glorification. And so it is a good and a happy ending, but it's not one that's guaranteed as a chapter in the story of this age, right? Um, they... It, Paul Tripp says this, it's not situational good. Oh, this is a hard situation, but God's going to work it to a good situation. That's not what it's guaranteeing. It's not a relational good. It's not a financial good. It's not a locational good. Oh, you're in a really hard spot, but God's going to get you to a good location. Um, this is not the promise, he says, of a happy family, a good marriage, a successful career, a wonderful church, physical health, or a comfortable retirement. It's interesting how when we hear he works all things together for good, those do pop in our head though, don't they? Like we can just be honest because that's what good seems like to us, doesn't it? But notice it's the good of God's rescuing, forgiving, transforming, and delivering grace. That's, it's redemptive grace and good that it's promising. And Tripp says, nothing can stop his work of grace in the lives of those he has chosen. He will complete what he has begun. His grace will win no matter what. Um, do you see the difference? It's subtle, but it's different, right? And really, I think the difference is, is it a this age good or is it an age to come good that it's really promising? 
and there's overlap in it. And we have had many times in our lives, I was just, I, I, it's so great talking about God's sovereignty and getting to hear some of your stories, but I've, I've heard we all have Garth Brooks-like experiences, right? Of like, we wanted something one way and God providentially worked that something else happened and it was good. And it was good in this age. It was better. It's not saying that never happens. It's just this verse isn't saying that always happens in this life. Um, God pro- does promise to exercise his sovereign authority and power for your good. He does bring good things out of bad things, but not happy circumstantial endings. He promises the good of his unrelenting, unstoppable grace. Um, here's a summary statement, and then we can just process it for a moment, I think. This is what Romans 8.28 means. You can celebrate God's sovereignty not because it guarantees you a happy and comfortable life, but because it connects you to him and the wonder of his inseparable love and unstoppable grace. That's Romans 8, right? Um, So hopefully that's just a helpful tweak in our thinking that keeps us looking to the ultimate uh, good. One other kind of just pastoral note of how this can be used harmfully, I guess. We, we could go into it in different ways. But um, when someone shares with us something that's not good in their life or something hard that happens, and we quickly rush in with God works all things for good, um, what it makes it sound like is the loss of that good thing doesn't matter. Um, you, you can talk with people who are grieving over the loss of a loved one, and um, yes, Romans 8 can tell us that God will work out a joy that eclipses the sadness, right? And, and there's this profound way that suffering won't even compare to the glory to be revealed. But when we're saying, well, God will work out the death of your loved one for good, what about the, but I want them with me now. It was good that they were here. There's truly loss of good that just happened, and what about that? Um, and so we don't want to rush to the goodness of the eternal plan without also leaving space for the lament of the loss of the good um, that's actually a very true part of what's happening too and the way that that grieves God's heart as well. He's not just sitting up in glory saying, come on, I'm going to make it all better. Why are you crying? He's right there with us in the grieving, in the tears saying, I know I hate that too, but I am going to take all that away. Like I will eclipse it with joy one day that you can't quite see yet, but I'm here with you in it while you can't see it. Does that make sense? Um, There's so much we could say, but I just, um, anyhow. Let's move on to the other two, and uh, and they'll um, move us along as well. So I just want you to know I'm not saying don't ever say Romans 8.28 and and don't preach it to our hearts. I'm just saying let's be careful how we do and make sure we think of it in an ultimate sense and make sure it's not the only thing we say when something not good happens. To me, those are just some concerns. All right. Secondly, God's sovereignty gives you reason to get up in the morning. Paul Tripp said it, so I I think that's kind of cool. 
Ever wonder why you should get up? Um, it can be hard to get up in the morning. We can wonder why bother. And I love that he gives voice to this. Um, why can it be hard to get up in the morning? Some can just be tiredness, but it can also be hard because our mind can be flooded with concerns concerns that were plaguing us the day before, and we may have had some reprieve of rest. We may have had dreams of them the whole night, and getting up is, they're just there, right? Um, It can be worry over a hard conversation we've had with a spouse or a child who's going astray, or Tripp talks about job uncertainty or not enough money, pending medical tests, discouraging results. Maybe it's hard to get up because you made choices that you can't undo, and for the life of you, you just wish you could wake up and those would be different, right? Maybe you wake up and you're weary, body and soul, and waking up just is immediate physical pain uh, and emotional pain. It can be hard for all kinds of reasons, right? God's sovereignty meets us in this. It doesn't take that away, but it meets us in it, and it assures us of something, Tripp says, it reminds you that no matter what trials you may face on any particular day, you wake up to a world that is under wise and righteous control. Even though we wake up to the present experience of all those things, we are also waking up to the truth that God is absolutely in control of everything that we will face that day. That's an amazing thing. Um, and we, this goes back to um, what we saw with Jesus in the sparrows. Again, you have to make sure that the God who's in control of all things is the God who has revealed himself as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we take that part away, then we just think of it as the universe control. I wake up to the control of the universe, of this um, deity who has plotted out a robotic course for me. But instead, um, the one who is in control that we wake up to is our Heavenly Father. And everything that Scripture tells us about his character and his heart is true of how he is orchestrating our day. He rules your life with a Father's loving care. We don't always understand it, like we talked about last week. (laughs) Daddy has to make a decision that you don't understand, but I want you to go down the hallway of life saying, He says this is good for me. He knows what's good for me. He wants what's best for me. I can trust him. Um, That was last week's things. Because he is sovereign over the details of your life, it means he is near, as we saw earlier. So near that he's reachable, touchable through prayer um, by what Jesus has brought by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us about the character of our Father who's in control when we wake up. And what does it say? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion toward those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. It's interesting that we're dust, you know, kind of going back to Genesis 2-7, formed from the dust of the ground. We're very earthy and yet breathed into by the, the ruach, the breath of God. Um, when we wake up in the morning, we often feel very dusty, We're bound by our creatureliness, right? All kinds of things we can't control, all kinds of aches and pains, all kinds of this and that. That's the dustiness of creaturely life. But our Father knows that and remembers that 
and yet comes and is sovereignly working things out of an awareness of that, not saying, if you get over that, then I'll work things for good for you. See the difference? Um, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When we wake up and feel that that's very far away, uh, this is what God wants us to know about himself as we muddle our way through the, the lack of knowing of his sovereign plan. So it gives us a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It can be interesting when we feel overwhelmed. You know, we go back to the circles. What am I overwhelmed about? Is that something that's actually my responsibility or is it just a concern of things going on in the world? But then also we can shepherd our hearts toward the truth. Okay, those are true things. Um, but what else do I also know is true? And I also know that God is sovereignly in control of everything I will encounter today. And I also know that his heart toward me is one of compassion and love, unstoppable love and grace, is what Romans 8 is reminding us of. Um, and those help buttress our faith in the midst of the uncertainty. The last thing is, um, um, Kevin brought this up last week, um, that I think is really important to hit on as well. God's sovereignty gives you real hope when you pray. That can be one of the first things that that comes up when we say, hey, we're talking about God's sovereignty. It can be, you know, mischaracterizations can be, well, why evangelize if God already has chosen everyone who who will be saved, right? Why even do anything? That also, on a Christian life level, why even pray if God's already planned it and is providentially working it out? Again, hard for us to, to grapple with in our heads. Um, But the Bible never says, God is in control, so don't pray. God is in control, so it's really a waste of words. I would think if that were true, the Bible would tell us that because that would save a lot of time, right? Um, Cool, we can slice that out. Our our worship service, we could put other songs in, Ryan, we don't need to pray. Um, Anyhow, the Bible never says that. Instead, what does it do? It commands and invites us to pray. It says pray without ceasing. It invites us into talking to God. It shows us God's people praying. It gives us a prayer book in the Psalms of how to sing and pray to God. And it shows us Jesus praying while he's here on earth and teaching us to pray. So it shows us the exact opposite. Everything about scripture tells us prayer is important. Tripp says, you simply cannot read your Bible and conclude that prayer is an empty, meaningless religious activity. So either God is lying and just tricking us and saying, they can't really understand sovereignty, but prayer makes them feel good, so I'll have them keep doing it, or it actually is important, right? Um, Why pray? We pray because God doesn't just determine the end or the final results, but he also determines the means. And what he has told us that he uses are these actions, reactions, and responses that produce this final result. And one of the ways God's chosen to work out what he has planned is by the faithful prayers of his children. He uses prayer in the working toward his plan in a way that, again, it goes beyond our understanding and yet, calls us into it that it's real and meaningful and does something. Um, James 5, 
says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then it uses this Old Testament example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I love that. He's dusty too. (laughs) And Elijah really struggled with stuff, right? And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Wow. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Um, Calvin, who, if you think of John Calvin, does he believe in God's sovereignty? <laughs> yeah, right? Like when, when people think of John Calvin, they're like, he's so much about God's sovereignty. That's like all he talks about. It's really not all he talks about. But anyhow, he's all about the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation and in life and all that. And listen to what he says. I, I didn't put it on the board. Yeah, on the board. Um, Calvin says, it was a notable event for God to put in heaven in some sense under the, okay, let me say that again. It was a notable event for God to put in heaven in some sense under the control of Elijah's prayers and to be obedient to his requests. Calvin's saying that in some sense, God was obedient to the requests of Elijah to send rain. Isn't that fascinating? By his prayers, Elijah kept heaven shut for two years and a half. Then he opened it and he made it suddenly pour with a great rain from which we may see the miraculous power of prayer. So that's Calvin. Um, Keller says, Calvin is both bold and yet careful in his language. He says that prayer in some sense affected the weather conditions in Israel. And that's the way we should think about it. Yes, in an ultimate sense, God is in charge of everything that occurs. And our our prayers couldn't possibly wrest control from his ultimate control, right? That would actually be a really scary thing because I've prayed for the wrong things. Garth Brooks prayed about the wrong thing. Um, and, And so if our prayers really could wrest control from God's sovereignty, that'd be problematic. However, it is a part of God's goodness and appointment that he allows the world to be susceptible to our prayers. He uses them in the orchestrating of all things. And so Keller, as he typically does, holds these things out beautifully. If we believe that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it would lead to discouraged passivity, right? Oh, God's in charge. Why do anything? If, on the other hand, we really believe that our actions changed God's plans, it would lead to paralyzing fear. Um, What if we prayed for the wrong thing? But if both are true, which is what Scripture says, we have the greatest incentive for diligent effort, and yet we can always sense God's everlasting arms under us. In the end, we can't frustrate God's good plans for us, but we can participate in them through prayer, and through our action. Um, I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. So our our prayers really matter, and they are means that God has ordained to bring about his purposes. And um, that's a beautiful thing. How's everyone doing? Um, I thought a fitting way to close could be just to read kind of his last paragraphs of the chapter. Um, and so I'll just read them and you can listen. I think he writes well enough. If I can read well enough, it will uh, summarize what we've been talking about with sovereignty. He says this, In both hard times and easy times, it is glorious to know that God rules and we don't. 
It's encouraging to know that our world is not out of control, no matter how chaotic and confusing it may seem, but it's under the wise and careful control of the Lord Almighty. It is sweet to know that the one who rules everything all of the time is our Father by grace. It's comforting to know that because he rules, nothing can stop the march of his life-producing, sin-defeating grace. It is good to know that there is a greater king who sits above the less-than-perfect kings of this earth. It lifts burdens off your shoulders to know that you can entrust to his wise rulership things that concern you deeply, but which you have no ability to change. It's good to remember that your sanity is not found in figuring everything out, but in trusting the one who has it all figured out from before origins to beyond destiny. It's spiritually healthy to wake up every morning and worship God as sovereign. I think that's a good summary of the various applications and things that we've been saying from Scripture. It doesn't zap all our cares away, but it adds um, scriptural warrant, care, um, to those things that help us as we walk through this life where we see dimly, right? Any closing comments of things that have been helpful to you as you think about God's sovereignty? He's ordained that the means by which you'd say them are through a microphone. That's funny. Anything you'd like to close with or that's been encouraging to you? It's also okay if not, but I just want to open it up. It's good to hear each other in these things. Yeah, Dave. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've found comfort myself in thinking about certain virtues that would not exist if not for first some evil thing coming to pass. So God's forgiveness wouldn't be possible if sin was not there first. God's comfort wouldn't be there if there was nothing for him to comfort us in. And so I find that as, you know, when when somebody brings the, the verse that we talked about, that God will bring ultimate good in the life hereafter, but what about today? Well, you can rest in a certain sense on the fact that the the very best thing coming is only possible because you're going through this trial right now and that you wouldn't be able to experience that joyful um you know the something unexpected later in 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 the life to come if you didn't have this trial that you're going through now to look back on and go oh my goodness he he rescued me from that mm. um so i think that that's that's tied in with his sovereignty being something that can be an ever-present help um, even while you're going through the trial. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. he um, is orchestrating this beautiful, glorious tapestry, and he has a way of using dark colors in it um, that serve as a contrast to the light of his grace, which is a beautiful thing. Anyone else? Marsha? Just one second. Thanks. Here it is. (laughs) I think that we we haven't really spoken about God's grace. Hmm. That since I'm like super really old, 
I've gone through some stuff. Hmm. And we think, how are we ever going to go through that? And it's only because he's given us that extra grace to handle, pardon me, to handle those things. Yeah. And that's because he's our loving father. That's really good. Yeah, the... That's the wonder is there will be this sovereign accompaniment of his grace in the midst of these things that he has ordained. Yeah, it's really good. Steph? Sorry. Um, I think sometimes we can, in our like super rich theology, we can like sterilize these truths uh-huh. to almost where you're you know, you're in a doctor's office and they tell you, here's the news, and, like, it's very cut and dry. So in that way, we can almost weaponize his sovereignty, like good things. Things that should be good and comforting, Mm -hmm. when we deliver them, they can often be harsh and cold. Um, So I wonder if we need less of, like, delivering the, like, here's the cold, hard truth of, like, God is sovereign, and more of the... Like, he's kind in it. Just those reminders of, like, who he is in it mm-hmm. and um, and whatever the trial is. And, yeah, just as we come alongside one another, yeah. you know, less of the, like, mm-hmm. well, why aren't you trusting him in his sovereignty, but just reminding each other, like, he's good and kind and he's here because those are the things that are really hard to remember. Yeah. It's really good. I... Uh, any doctrine will get distorted if it becomes impersonal or just clinical. You know, I, I think God's sovereignty is one. As you know, as we talk with people who wrestle with, is it free will or God's sovereignty? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's so much pushback against a robust understanding of God's sovereignty because of how clinical it can sound and how um, divorced it is from. Him also being the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has come near to us. And that's the epitome of his plan is to draw us into relationship with himself. So that, that's a great word of making sure the personal, relational, gracious aspects of what we know about the heart of God also accompany this robust understanding of he knows everything, is in control of everything, is all-powerful in ways we can't even understand and yet is more loving than we could ever understand, and his grace is more present um, than we will ever know, <laughs> I think. So that's really good. Well, thanks for your input and, and feedback. Let me pray, and then um, we'll fellowship, and then head to the worship service. Our Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to be able to address you as our Father who knows our frame and that we are but dust. You understand our weaknesses, our struggles, our frailties, and you are the complete opposite of all of those things. Um, You hold this entire universe in your sovereign control, and our minds can't even wrap themselves around that. And yet, in all of that, you have planned to draw us near to yourself and to bring us into fellowship with you through Jesus Christ and enjoy your glory and beauty, and wonder, and goodness for all eternity. Help us as we walk through this life humbly, not knowing what comes next, to trust your heart and your character. And thank you for the ways that, especially as we look back, 
we see how good you have been to us, how great is your faithfulness. And that we can know that even if we have no idea how you could work that out in the things we're presently facing. Thank you that one day the glory will surpass the sufferings and groanings of this life and that you are also with us in all of those laments and cares. We lift all of this up to you as our Heavenly Father. We pray for your help that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.